You're listening to the UI podcast by the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. Welcome to the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. I'm Jan Hallenberg. I'm now research leader at this. Okay. I'm Jan Hallenberg, research leader at the Institute. You hear me better now? Very good. I'm also a professor of political science. Still very low. Better now. Better now. Etterbra. Uh, since, since I'm writing a book called Sostyrs USA, the way US, the US is governed, I'm going to give you your mechanics around this election. And after I've sp- spoken for maybe five minutes, I'll hand the word over to uh, Bruce Stokes, who will get to the midterms. But before that, he will talk a little bit about how the world sees the US and President Donald Trump. That's a, a survey that his organization, the Pew Research Organization, has undertaken. And after him, our guest Sanna Björling will speak for 20 minutes around the uh, midterm elections. There are lots of elections coming on uh, November 6th. There's the election for the Senate, of course, as you know, 100 senators. But they say for six years that there's only one third being elected. This time there's 35 elections. When it comes to the House, always every second year, so all 435 are being uh, in competition now. Thirdly, there is also elections for governors. I believe in 36 states. That is happening on November 6th. And fourthly, there are ballot measures in 37 states. That is, the citizens of the various states can vote on various issues such as uh, election policy. How should redistricting be handled in each state? That is, those districts for the House of Representatives, they change every 10 years after the census that is taken every 10 years and next time in 2020, according to what rules or who should decide how those new districts should look in 2021 or 2022 when they come into action. Another common question concerns whether or not marijuana should be legalized in the various states. The third type of ballot concerns Restrictions on state taxes. There was an important election, I think, in 1978 in California, where the citizens voted against, or at least to lower the taxes on their properties, which gave California lots of economic problems after that. That was the start of the really wave of, one can say, of the Republicans striving for lower taxes around the United States. And fourthly, they are voting on whether or not Medicaid, you know, that support program for health insurance, should be expanded or not in their respective states. So these are four categories of these elections that are also happening on November 6th. As you remember from 2016, it's not always easy for pollsters to to, uh, tell what will happen. I mean, it's in, almost infamous in 2016. I mean, everybody thought that Hillary would win, and then uh, Mr. Trump won. But 
it was only a couple of percentage points. Let's remember that it was still very tight. Number one, in gross voting terms, it was tight, and particularly given this uh, way in which the electorate, the electors of the various states, are distributed. If the votes, 80,000 votes in three states, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, had gone the other way, Hillary would have been president. Out of 100, more than 130 million votes cast, 80,000 votes had changed. She would have been president. So the participation rate in, in recent presidential elections have approached 60% of the electorate, if you put it in overall estimation. When it comes to midterms, it has been lower than 40%. Last time, around 36%. And a very big question this time is, what does the enthusiasm that we seem to see out in the various states? I've been looking at the newspapers and the TV the last few days. Those states that have begun early voting, they see lots of people queuing up, much more than in earlier cycles, particularly midterm cycles. What does this mean? How many people will go to vote? If 40% if of, of the voters, we've reached that percentage point, that'll be 135. No, want to be there. It'll be 94 million. 94 million would vote if 40% of the electorate voted now. And if 50% voted, it would be 117 million. That's a 23 million span here. And we don't know where this will fall. And how do we know where these people, particularly the ones who don't usually vote in midterm elections, why do they come out in droves this year? Are they anti-Trump? 80% of them? Or are they incensed over the treatment of Kavanaugh? Are they Republicans who want to support Donald Trump? Who want to protest against that caravan that you maybe see on TV? Those 3,000, 5,000, 7,000 Central Americans who are moving through Mexico and coming closer to the US border. We simply don't know how these people will vote. So it's very difficult indeed, perhaps even more difficult than usual, to prognosticate what will happen. So that's, that's part of the fascination with American politics. It's, it's very easy to say that you believe you have prognostication. I said, I think, I think the first time I was on Swedish radio in 1991, that was just after the Gulf War and President George H.W. Bush had 90% approval rate. And I said in response to a question that he has already won the 1992 presidential election, which he didn't, of course. So, I mean, one way of saying that it's difficult to prognosticate. So that's a few words of starting. And then we'll hand over to Bruce, and he will tell us from this survey here how the world sees the US and President Donald Trump. Bruce, please. Jan, thank you so much. It's a real pleasure to be back here at, at uh, UE. And uh, I've had a, the, the honor to speak here a number of times. And I've always looked forward to the questions, the informed questions I get from the audience. So I look forward to that conversation. And, and uh, uh, as Jan said, I'd, I, what I'd like to do is share with you our annual, the results of our annual survey about the uh, image of the United States and confidence in the US president and uh, how people view the power of the United States around the world, because that is something that um, uh, happens to change over time. 
uh, and uh, uh, is something that I think gives us a sense of kind of where uh, at least the U.S. is headed in world affairs uh, over time. Um, what? Yeah. Maybe this is it. Bottom one. Okay. Try that. There we go. Uh, the Pew Research Center is based in Washington. We're funded by the Pew Charitable Trust. We're nonpartisan, uh, non-advocacy uh, uh, think tank. Um, and uh, we firmly believe, and the Pew Charitable Trust that funds us firmly believes that good public policy flows from good information. So we do surveys, enormous amount of survey work in the United States, but also around the world. We've now surveyed in more than 108 countries, uh, not at any one time, but over the 20 some years that we've been doing this. Um, and this is the sample I'm gonna talk about today. It's 27 countries. It includes uh, a number of uh, uh, Western European countries, actually uh, uh, 10 EU countries, uh, but also Japan, South Korea, Australia, Philippines, et cetera. Um, these are the results in Sweden on the topics that I'm gonna talk about today. Um, as you can see, 44% of Swedes have uh, a favorable view of the United States. Uh, only 17% of Swedes have a favorable view of uh, Donald Trump. I can tell you that's up seven points from last year. It was only 10 points last year. Um, and 42% uh, think the US, uh, uh, the relations with the US have gotten worse. And only 5% think the U.S. is uh, dealing with global problems the way it used to. Uh, so it's a fairly negative view of Sweden about the United States. Um, this is the map of the countries that we've surveyed uh, uh, this year. As you can see, in Asia, uh, there's a fairly positive view still of the United States. In fact, it's up 10 points from last year in South Korea up six points in, in Japan. We think that is because uh, both the Japanese and the South Koreans believe that the US is actually trying to address what both the South Koreans and the Japanese tell us is one of their most major problems, which is North Korea. Um, Philippines seems to like the United States pretty much. Uh, only about half the Australians do. Uh, Kenyans are very pleased with us. Uh, notice the Mexicans and the Canadians on our border aren't so pleased with the United States. And in Europe, there's really, uh, uh, it really varies. Uh, Sweden, 44%, uh, Germany, only 30%. Um, this is the uh, result in, across Europe in terms of favorability of the US. Uh, the Poles and the Hungarians are actually very favorably disposed towards the US still. The Dutch and the Germans, not so much at all. Uh, the Swedes are really right kind of in the middle uh, in terms of their views of the US. Uh, What's interesting in terms of views of the US is that they really haven't changed that much in Europe since last year, but the real change was from the last year of the Obama administration, first year of the Trump administration, where you saw a dramatic fall off in favorability, and then it's kind of slightly gotten worse in most countries. But uh, 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 for the most part, the movement was uh, uh, in the last, uh, uh, the first year of the Trump administration, as you can see, I mean, the fall off uh, between 2016 and 2017 in Sweden was uh, 24 percentage points, which is a pretty big drop in, in one year. Um, 
people on the uh, people who are younger uh, tend to have a more favorable view of the United States all over the world. This is something we found uh, consistently since 2002 when we began to do our surveys. Uh, but then younger people tend to all over the world just view the rest of the world more favorably than older people. So. Young Chinese have a more favorable view of the US than older Chinese. And young Americans have a more favorable view of China than older Americans. I, it's something about young people are just more open to the world. As I like to joke, you know, what we don't know is whether they'll keep that, that more positive and open view as they age. I mean, is it, in the young people I work with say, absolutely, you know, we came of age after the Cold War. We came of age after China was a part of the global community. Uh, you know, where we travel more, we have more communication, we're just different than you old fogies. And I like to say to them, yeah, but tell when you have two kids and you're divorced and you've lost three jobs, tell me how open you are to the world. We just don't know whether young people are naive and, and romantic and, or, or actually, in fact, they're different than older people. And um, as a result, we'll be more accepting of the world than, say, my generation. Uh, people on the right are more favorably disposed towards the U.S. than people on the left. That probably is not totally surprising. Um, this is the uh, breakdown by political party in Europe. Uh, if you have a favorable view, say, of the conservative party in the U.K., 63% of those people have a favorable view of the U.S. Maybe not surprising. If you have a favorable view of the right-wing populist AFD in Germany, you're more likely than the rest of the German population to have a favorable view of the United States. Uh, here's the breakdown in Sweden among the three uh, parties that we, we ask about. Um, uh, Sweden Democrats are more likely to have a favorable view of the United States than anybody else in the society. Um, uh, Sweden Democrats are more likely to have confidence in, in uh, President Trump than uh, supporters of other parties. Although notice it's only 32% of Sweden, the followers of the Sweden Democratic Party who have a, favor, a confidence in the US president. Um, and so there's, there, you know, there are political differences which you, you might anticipate. Um, we asked people last year, do you anticipate that relations will get better or worse with the United States in this first year of this new president? And for the most part, people said, no, we don't think they'll change very much. We asked them now, after that first year, have things gotten better or worse? Most people continue to say, actually, things haven't changed that much, except the Germans. 80% <laughs> of Germans say things have gotten worse over the last uh, uh, year. Um, notice that uh, plurality of Swedes say things haven't changed that much. And also notice that very few, almost nobody, says things have gotten better with small, very small numbers of people. Um, what about uh, confidence in the US president? We ask this question every year. Uh, it, this is confidence in the US president's handling of world affairs. You know, not, we're not asking foreigners, how's he doing on the infrastructure challenge in the United States or anything. It's, this is about how is he conducting world affairs. Um, this is the trend line in Europe for confidence in the US president since 2002. As uh, a senior German official said to me when he saw this chart, he said, oh, isn't it interesting? It took George Bush eight years to get to this low point. It took Donald Trump two months. Uh, and as you can see, things kind of 
confidence in the U.S. president under Bush got worse and worse, then confidence in the U.S. president jumped up as soon as Obama was elected. It kind of bounced around up there and then fell off a cliff uh, when Trump was elected. I mean, I think there's a couple of things to take away from this. One is it's, this is a highly volatile indicator, very emotional indicator. The second is we in 2009, after uh, Obama had been elected, we did ask people uh, in Europe, well, what do you expect of this new guy who you've just told us you have enormous confidence in? And uh, people said, well, he's going to end climate change. He's going to bring peace to the Middle East. He's going to end the financial crisis. <laughs> And I remember at the time saying to people, you think he walks on water? I mean, you know, come on. I mean, <laughs> these are difficult problems. But uh, even after he'd been reelected, we said to people, well, you know, are you still confident in this guy? Said, yeah. Well, has he actually done? You know, well, no. So this is a very emotional thing for people. Um, but you can notice it hasn't really recovered in the second year of the, of the Trump administration. Uh, this is the uh, confidence in the U.S. president this year in Europe. As you can see, 82% of Swedes lack confidence in the U.S. president. 17% have confidence in him. Uh, last year, it was only 10% of Swedes who had confidence in the U.S. president. Uh, I can tell you last year, the drop-off in confidence of Obama versus the first year of Trump, the fall-off was 83 percentage points. I have never in my life seen a change in public opinion of 83 percentage points in one year. <laughs> now, again, it's recovered seven points, you know, so it's now down only, what is seven, 83 minus seven, 70, 76% lower than it was under uh, Obama. Uh, people on, uh, who favor right-wing populist parties uh, have a more favorable view of Donald Trump. Maybe that's not surprising. What is interesting, is that except in the UK, supporters of right-wing populist parties in various European countries, still less than half of those people like Donald Trump. I mean, if you had said to me, okay, more than half of them are gonna like, I would say, well, okay, maybe I understand that, but that's just not the case. Um, uh, this is just to give you a sense of, this is Germany, but um, these, the confidence in the U.S. president and favorability of, of the United States tend to go hand in hand. They parallel each other. And, and favorability of the U.S. is less volatile than confidence in the U.S. president, which tends to kind of pull down favorability of the U.S. and then pull up favorability of the U.S., depending on the year. Uh, that's Japan. You can see the same. Uh, that's Israel. As you can see, there's very strong support for the U.S., uh, and it's actually improving, but really what's really improved is favorability of, of, of the U.S. president in Israel. Um, notice that the Russians have lost. They, there was a, last year, there was this burst of favorability of the U.S. and confidence in the U.S. president, and it lasted one year, and it's fallen off again. Um, what about the U.S. role in the world? To my mind, this is maybe the second most important slide I'm going to show you. We ask a series of soft power questions about the U.S. because we think that's important. That's part of our image, part of our power in the world is our soft power. For years, a, ma a strong majority of Europeans said, you know, the United States, well, one of the things we like about the United States is they protect the civil liberties of their own people. Then, in the Obama administration, you had the NSA scandal. 
And that began to go down. And then you had Ferguson and Black Lives Matter and the killing of, of black teenagers by white policemen. And it went down further in Europe. And then you had the election of Donald Trump and it went down further. So this soft power indicator, it just keeps going down. Uh, and it had been one of the hallmarks of America's image that people thought, well, you know, one of the things we like about the United States is it protects the civil liberties of Americans. Um, we asked people, does the U.S. act unilaterally or not? And in 2013, um, uh, many people said, well, you know, actually, we think the U.S. takes into account our interests when it makes foreign policy. There are far fewer people now who say that. They, there's this growing sense that we act unilaterally. Uh, does the U.S., uh, is it involved in tackling global problems? Notice that 75% of Swedes say we are, the U.S. is less involved in tackling global problems than uh, it has been in the past. Um, we ask people about various uh, countries and, you know, who is getting more involved compared to 10 years ago in the world. Overwhelmingly, people say it's China not the U.S. Now, bear in mind, this is a relative thing. I mean, they could still say the U.S. is the most involved, but China's growing faster in terms of its, in, of its influence in the world. Uh, notice that the Greeks, 81% of the Greeks say the Germans are uh, exercising uh, a more important role in the world than they did 10 years ago. You wonder why the Greeks are saying that. Um, nevertheless, and I think this is an interesting note uh, to end on that, when forced to choose, when we ask publics in Europe, uh, well, you know, you just said you don't really like Donald Trump and your kind of favorability of the U.S. is down and you think the U.S. is less involved in global affairs and is acting more unilaterally, but if you had to choose between uh, what's better for the world to have the U.S. or China be the world's leading power overwhelmingly Europeans still say the United States. So there is a faith in the United States that maintains itself. And the strongest is actually in Sweden. 76% of Swedes say that. Um, so do you want me to talk? Yeah. Yes, yeah. I do. But is there any specific question on, on this presentation? You can have one or two questions before we move sure. to the midterms. Oh, there are two questions at the yeah. back there. So, sorry about that, Ilvan. We have to be flexible. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, um, so you said that the uh, perception of Trump has recovered uh, 7%. Why do you think that is? I don't know. I, 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 would, I would actually like to ask you that. I mean, you're the Swedes. I mean, I, 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 it may be that it just fell so far that, you know, it's kind of a bounce. Uh, because, you know, if you, just, if you had said to me, you know, in a snapshot, okay, confidence in the U.S. president in Sweden, 17%. I'd say that's pretty bad, right? So the fact that it went up from 10 to 17, you know, maybe it, it, that it's beyond the margin of error, you know. So it is actually is a, is a statistically significant movement. Uh, but I have, frankly, I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, okay, there's one, one other question, yeah. question, I think. Yeah, yeah there, sorry. There was one slide we had the Swedish men in general with a 8% favor favorable for Trump yeah, and 13 for women. Yeah. Is that a trend we've seen in many other countries? Because what 
I've heard what I've yeah. seen is that no, no, women I think tend to in general, men seem to be more uh, predisposed towards uh, Donald Trump than, than women. I mean, it may not be a majority of men, but you're, you're right. There tends to be a gender gap in the other direction. Uh, so I just ask all you Swedish women what it is about Donald Trump. It, let, me, let me tell you a funny story. Um, you know, we survey in India every year. And so I was in um, rural Rajasthan in December in a village in the middle of nowhere that I go to periodically just to kind of check in on, you know, how one village has evolved over time. And so I got about 10 or 12 Indians, Indian men sitting around in a circle. They wouldn't let me have the women in the circle. They had to talk to them separately. And all these guys had cell phones, right? So that you would, in theory, they were attached to the world, even though they lived literally in the middle of nowhere. And so I thought, okay, I'll ask. I said, have you guys ever heard of Donald Trump? Remember, he'd been president for a year by then. And only three of these guys had ever heard of Donald Trump. And one of them said, isn't he the guy who has three wives? <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I didn't want to break his heart and say, yeah, but not at the same time. <laughs> no. Okay, final question yeah. on this topic. From the map you showed in the early beginning, yes, it yeah. looks like the further away you are from the U.S., the more positive you are. Well, you might say that. You know, I mean, you know, I mean, look at the figures for Canada and Mexico. Yeah, they are pretty low compared um, to China and other countries. I mean, I'll will tell you one of one of the interesting indicators that we we didn't ask this question this year, but last year we asked people one of the other soft power attributes of the U.S. is our political system, our American-style democracy, and American ideas about democracy, which certainly Americans believe everybody wants to emulate, right? And what's interesting when we ask that question is that it's true in, you know, in Kenya or South Africa or, I don't know, the Philippines, people say, oh, yeah, we, we really like that. But the people who know us best, the Brits, the Canadians, the Mexicans, no. <laughs> so you do wonder whether, you know, that's that sense that we have of ourselves, that every that is what Ronald Reagan used to say, he stole this line from some Puritan pastor in the 16th century, you know, that we are the shining city on a hill that everybody aspired to. Well, not the people who know us the best. So I, I, that's a, it's a good observation. Uh, so, yeah, let me talk a little bit about, just briefly about uh, the upcoming election. I mean, the bottom line is we have no idea who's gonna win. I mean, let's be honest with ourselves. Um, and um, uh, I think that we don't do a lot of, we don't do horse race polling at Pew. So I can't tell you we know, you know, who's going to win or not. I can tell you what the mood of the electorate is, and that is that um, uh, there, there had been what's called an enthusiasm gap between Republicans and Democrats. But there were Democrats much more enthusiastic several weeks ago looking forward to this election and less, the Republicans less enthusiastic. That enthusiasm gap has narrowed and the Republicans have gotten more enthusiastic. Now, the, the Wall Street Journal poll that came out on Sunday showed that the level of enthusiasm is the highest it has been since at least 2006, which is exactly what we found in our survey too. So it's a very high enthusiasm, which could lead to a high turnout. Uh, you know, bear in mind the turnout is notoriously low in the United States for these kinds of elections. Uh, and the challenge the Democrats face is that the Democratic Party today is, is at the margin more minorities and young people and women than, say, the Republican Party. 
Well, the turnout among minorities and young people is notoriously low in the United States. It's even lower than the 36 or 40 percent you get in a normal midterm election. Uh, in fact, Hispanic turnout in the last midterm election was 29 percent. So, uh, and we did a recent study about young people voting in the United States, and you know, the young people notoriously in our history, and I think in many countries, vote at a lower rate than older people for all sorts of sociological reasons. Millennials have now had a chance to vote in three midterm elections, that generation. We compared their turnout rate to the turnout rates, say, of my generation, the baby boom generation. We both voted at a lower rate than our parents or grandparents. But millennials voted in their first election six percentage points less than we did. And by the third election, which is the last election that the millennials could vote in, that difference had grown to 13 percentage points. So whatever millennials tell pollsters they're going to do, they still have to prove it by showing up at the polls. And in fact, their turnout has been abysmal um, uh, in the first three elections that they had a chance to vote in. So uh, I think that's the challenge that the, the Democrats face, is, is turnout, turnout, turnout. Um, the president's approval has been a kind of a stone around the Republican's neck uh, uh, for months. Uh, the president in our poll is only at 38% approval. Uh, in the Wall Street Journal poll, he's at 47%. So there's a real variety here in terms of, of uh, measurement. But even if you take the, the Wall Street Journal's approval rate of 47%, there have only been two presidents since World War II who had a lower approval rate you know, at this point in their first term. So it's still, relatively speaking, not that good. Um, and uh, you know, we, we uh, don't know whether people will, will show up to vote on election day. We don't know where they'll show up to vote. I mean, it's a, it's a congressional election. So I think the, the, the consensus political opinion in Washington today is the Republicans will retain control of the Senate. Uh, there are more than twice as many Democrats up for re-election as Republicans. So just arithmetically, it's hard for the, Dem the Democrats to gain control. They only have to pick up two seats, so you say, well, that's, that's doable. But when you have to defend more than twice as many seats, it, it gets harder. And um, in the House, uh, even though there are 435 uh, races, uh, only about 45 or 50 of those are actually contestable. The other ones are kind of baked in. Uh, their districts have become so Republican or so Democrat that it's, you know, there's, well, not that there's a, well, in in the town I grew up in in 2016, the Republican there was a Republican representative. He was he's the tackle on my high school football team, um, and you know, he there was no Democrat to run against him. Now I don't I think there's a Democrat this time, but the point being, you know, there's a lot of these districts are kind of drawn and kind of for all sorts of reasons. I mean, you know, we have this problem of gerrymandering, and if you've ever seen a, a, a map of a US congressional district, sometimes they look like amoeba. You know, they just kind of, the fingers would go out in all directions. But there's also the pressure, the issue of people self-selecting where they want to live. So minorities and young people tend to want to congregate in cities and on the coasts. So you have districts that sometimes are like overwhelmingly democratic. 
And then you have rural areas that are overwhelmingly old white people like me. So, I mean, I mean, it's just, and so they're Republicans. So it, it's, but that's not because of gerrymandering. It's just because that's where people select to live. And what are you going to do about that? But, but so there's maybe 45 or 50 seats that are contestable. Um, I would say that David Wasserman, who's probably the best analyst of congressional relations and races in Washington, believes that of those, say, 45 seats that are contestable, 40 of them are Republican and five of them are Democratic. So the Republicans face a stiff challenge in defending. Now, the Democrats have to gain 23 seats to gain control of the House of Representatives. So one of the things to watch the day after the election is, if the Democrats win, do they win by two seats or by 10 or 15 seats? Because, you know, even if you have the majority, if you only have a majority of, say, two seats, it's a tenuous hold on the majority. What if somebody dies or, you know, they get indicted or they get sick or there's all sorts of reasons or maybe just on a given vote, you'll have a conservative Democrat who votes with the Republicans. So, but if it's a 10 or 15 seat majority, well, then it's a more solid uh, victory for the the Democrats. And I think it's not beyond their own possibility the Republicans could retain control of the House. I think that, um, uh, I think for months people thought that wasn't possible, but I think increasingly people think that may well be, be possible. But I've talked way too long, so why don't we have Sana kind of give her comments and then we'll kind of go, you know, from there. Thank you. Well, probably be a little bit overlapping, but it does yeah. matter. So, yeah, so the midterm elections, I, I covered the last midterm elections, but they weren't at all as exciting as these ones. Um, and, of course, there are several elections, as we mentioned, the Senate elections, and the House of Representatives, and the uh, gubernatorial elections, and the legislators in many places that are also very important for several reasons. Um, and as we said, the... We won't make predictions here. It can go either way. Um, but as most political analysts suggest now, the Democrats are probably will probably take a majority in the House, and but we don't know that. Um, but that's what most polls suggest yeah. anyway. And the Republicans would probably keep the majority in the Senate. And um, of course now. Uh, after two years of Trump, this is the first time that the electorate can really have their say over what, over over what is happening in the United States. And usually, the midterm elections is some kind of referendum on the on the on the sitting president. And um, it's not it's it's not rare that the party of the sitting president are losing uh, seats in the midterms. Um, so what is important here? I think. There has been a couple of things that have been um, the big issues here. One of them, of course, is the, the so-called the blue wave. How strong will the Democrats be here? And just as we said a few months, even a few weeks ago, it seemed to be uh, a substantial wave, and that is not so sure anymore. Um, Democrats, of course, the other thing is um, the engagement of women and the big, the record number of women running for office. I think it's 256, I've got it somewhere, women running for office. And of them, 234 are, are Democrats. So that's, of course, a record number. And uh, it would be very interesting to see how many of these women really make it 
um, and um, and it like, could also change, of course, Congress. Uh, I think also that it's interesting to see how the Democrats here, um, how they tackle the different districts. It's not, they don't necessarily um, talk that much about Trump uh, as he, if you go and is, if you're too critical of Donald Trump, the, the Trump critics, you already have them. Uh, and in many of the districts that are contested, for example, in the Midwest, Donald Trump actually, he, he was, he took the majority in the Midwest. And in, in these districts, you will find Democrats that are more moderate, and they prefer to talk about, not about uh, Mr. Trump, but about bread and butter issues, about healthcare, about social security, about tax reform, and these things that they, they are threatened by the Republican um, Congress. And you would not find them talk that much about Donald Trump. Whereas on the Republican side, uh, it's much more common, it's much more dangerous to be critical of Donald Trump. Um, in, during the 2016 election and also after that, you, you would, it was pretty clear you, you would have a quite strong anti-Trump movement among Republicans and conservatives in the United States. That is not so much anymore. The only few really vocal critics of Donald Trump in Congress are retiring senators who don't risk anything, as Jeff Flake of Arizona or Bob Corker of Tennessee, that they, um, they're not running now. And it's much more, you will be much more vulnerable as a Republican um, politician to be critical of Donald Trump. And to, I think, to uh, a unique extent, Donald Trump himself has made this an election about him, very explicitly. He's been doing almost 30 rallies all around the country, particularly in, in, San, in states that are uh, contested. As He's been going like three times to Montana, uh, and he's been going to Missouri, for example, and really talked about himself. And also campaigning, of course, for, for the, the, the Republican senator or congressman there, but also very explicitly about himself. Like, this is about me. This is a vote about me. And as you both said, the reason, I think, for this gap of, an, of enthusiasm that has, um, that we've been seeing the last few weeks is, of course, also tied to the hearings of, of Brett Kavanaugh for the Supreme Court. And um, even though, as we see here of the, the, the survey and what we see in Sweden and um, the bigger picture is it's easy to be critical of, of Donald Trump for withdrawing from the Paris Agreement, from what he does with, he starts a trade war, his radical stance on immigration, etc. But in the United States, I think among Republicans and, and conservatives, they, I've met very few um, that like his leader style, that likes his rhetoric, that likes his tweets, but you will find many people who really like his policies on trade, on immigration, um, on the Supreme Court judges and the nominations for the Supreme Court, which is, an, I think, the most important uh, issue for many people to go vote at all in the US. Um, so I think the support among the electorate is not so negative about uh, the president as you might get an impression of when you're sitting here and if, if it's absurd that he might not, that he might well, still have the whole Congress. Um, 
I think there are, um, you can see, for example, in, in one of the Senate's senators, that the, uh, a Democratic senator, uh, Clara McCaskill in, in Missouri, who will probably lose her seat to a Republican, which is just, in the, in you, and you will see there exactly this. She hasn't mentioned uh, Donald Trump all that much. She talks a lot more about um, health care and social security and jobs. And she voted against uh, the confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh, but not because he's the allegations of sexual misconduct, but because he stands on money in politics. So she tried to kind of go around that. Um, whereas the Republican um, uh, Senate, well, the, the, her, um, the Republican um, politician is, is much more clear about, about Trump. I think there are other, um, um, you will also find that this, the, the, the major, I think, group that people are talking about here that will really determine the election are the women and the educated women and the women in suburbs. Because as both of you said, you will find the U United States is increasingly polarized and you will find a lot of Democrats in the coast, in the big cities, and the rural areas are much more Republican and conservative, but in between there you have the suburbs or the suburban areas, and you will have, you, you will find many women who might vote, might have voted for Trump. They might have voted for Obama. Many people who voted for Obama actually to vote for Trump, uh, and they are not so pleased with him. Um, and to the extent, to, it would be very interesting to see to the extent that these educated women will actually go out and vote, and what they um, and how they will. Choose. And I think you can see that, for example, in, uh, in districts in Virginia, Virginia being very close to, to Washington, D.C., but also has a very conservative, um, the, the, the D.C. metropolitan area is very liberal, but in the rural Virginia is very conservative. And in, the, in between there, you can find races for, the, for a house, races for, where, for example, Dave Bratt, who is a very conservative um, congressman, uh, is challenged by a Democrat. He, according to the polls, he's leading in the polls, but it's a, one of these districts that is just between the rural area and, um, and the more uh, urban area. I think it's also interesting to see what happens with what we, we talked about gerrymandering, but we also, there's also, um, I think if you look ahead, one of the, a few of the races for governor is, are interesting. For example, in Georgia, where uh, you will have um, Stacey Abrams, which is, who is an African-American um, woman running for governor there, and, um, and her uh, counterpart, um, the Republican there, are really having a, they're, they're, that would be a close race, but it also puts the finger on voter suppression, where you can find gerrymandering is one of those things um, that we, that we see all over the United States and that have been up in, in Supreme Court um, decisions, but the Supreme Court has yet not really taken a stand on the actual, um, on how to um, deal with gerrymandering. If it's a, a, something that is to be decided by the local politicians or if it's something that should be decided uh, on a, on a new, by a neutral body. And um, in Georgia, in many of the, the the southern states in the U.S., 
all changes to the voter laws had to be um, um, had to be had to be had to have consent from the federal government. In 2013, that was taken away, which opened up for changing voter laws all over. And they they actually started straight away when they could. And now you can you can see, for for example, in Georgia, they um, there is now something called the perfect match law, which means that you have to that the name and the address that you have on your social security it has to match exactly with your register when you register as a voter, which means that if there is a typo or mismatch, a spelling mistake, a hyphen, something that is not correct, you're not you you you're you're you might not be able to vote. And there has been thousands of people, um, most of them African-American or minority, most of them Democrat, which have, have had problems with registering for voting. And this is both of the, in Georgia in the government, in the gubernatorial election there, this, this, this will be one of the, who, who wins there can also set some kind of will play out the scene for the next time. And this also brings down, I think, to the legislators in, in many states, which for the next, for in 2020, the census, which draws the, draws the districts, that is how you draw the districts is decided by the, the, the state legislators. And they are elected now for drawing the districts in for the 2020 census, which is, when you count the population and when you redraw the districts. And how these districts are shaped will determine how um, elections will turn out for the, for the coming decade, at least, in the United States. So I think the midterm elections, they, they might be not as interesting and not as exciting as the presidential election, but they are very um, consequential. Thank you. Can I just add two points to what, what you, your interesting uh, speech there? The, the, Repub the Republican gubernatorial candidate in Georgia, Mr. Kemp, yes. he is the Secretary of State. The Secretary of State in the various states, he's the man responsible for the elections. Yes. So he is, he is the one deciding whether the re elections for his post are being correct or not. I mean, that is troubling. Number two, uh, when it comes to the gender gap, I just watched this morning the um, New Day, I think it's called on CNN, and they had this, had this poster there, and he said that from the last three big polls, the gender gap is 30%. Men are going to vote Republican by 8% majority, and women are going to vote Democrat by 22%. Yeah. It's the highest in, in, in measured history. So this, this is really how that will play out, as Sana said, it's in the various races, it's going to be very interesting. Yeah, now we open up for questions, and we have a gentleman here who has been preparing for several minutes, and he will... <laughs> <laughs> in the third district in Alabama, who's going to win? No, I'll make a much more general thing and a provocative uh, proposal, because the title of today's seminar is What is at Stake? And you talk yes. about various things, yes. Medicare, yeah. you talk about judges, you... Yeah. But, democracy is at stake. Not that democracy will completely disappear, but the trend has been terrible for decades now. So it's not just under Trump. Since the Voting Rights Act under Johnson 50 years ago, took away the poll tax and so on, 
was opened up, it was much more democratic. It's become less and less so as more and more people are excluded. All these figures you're talking about, 36% in the last uh, midterms or 56% in the present, that's of eligible voters. So many are not eligible. Yeah. They're felons or former felons. Right. Yeah. They're people who are not registered as a couple of examples were given. There are things demanding that a person has a driver's license or a passport. Any poor people don't have passports and many of them don't have driving license. So there's a whole lot of things where it's getting less and less democratic at the same time as Trump is attacking the press and doing all types, he's the most corrupt person I've ever seen in politics, <laughs> at least in the United States. Um, so I'd like you to react to, to my provocative comments. I interviewed um, Bernice King, the daughter of um, Martin Luther King Jr. recently in Stockholm, and she had actually been trying to vote in Atlanta for a, an absentee vote, and she turned out at the at her polling station and it was closed. So um, it's plays out in different ways. And of course, they, they try to change places for polling stations. I think that's totally correct. That's why I also brought it up that it's, um, we see this in very subtle ways. And, and, um, and I think that's um, the appointment of, of judges is another Example. Well, to give you an example that was in the press uh, just over the weekend, uh, you probably have all heard of Dodge City, Kansas, because it's you know famous in westerns, right? And um, Dodge City, Kansas, I didn't realize this, now is a very large Hispanic population. It's fact, I think it's a, the plurality, the majority of the population is Hispanic. There is not a single polling booth in the city of Dodge City, Kansas. The closest polling booth is a mile away from the nearest bus stop outside of town. Now, is this just an accident? Nope. <laughs> I mean, to give you an example, I come from Pennsylvania and uh, years ago, and it was actually thrown out by the courts when, when the state legislature tried to do this. The state legislature tried to require that everybody have a, a picture ID if you were going to vote. My mother had voted in 50 straight elections in the United States. I was very proud of her, but that was a small town kind of, you, that's what your civic duty, you did that, right? But for the last 10 years of my mother's life, we had taken away her driver's license because she, we, you know, she was not fit to drive. That was the only picture ID that older people in America, if they don't travel, they have, right? So there's my mother under that law who had voted in 50 straight elections would have been denied the right to vote, which was, in one hand, totally ridiculous because she probably would have voted Republican. <laughs> you know, but the point being, it was voter suppression. Now, it fortunately, it got thrown out of the courts by the courts. But there are these, you know, example after example of this. Um, and bear in mind that the combination of the low turnout in America with, you know, the fact that not everybody's registered to vote, Donald Trump won 47% of the vote in November of 2016. That was 26% of the eligible voters. Now, if Hillary had won, she would have maybe had 27 or 28% of the eligible voters. So it's not a commentary on Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton. It's a, it's a commentary on the fact that the combination of low turnout and the fact that many people aren't registered to vote means that you get a government that doesn't represent a majority of the eligible voters. 
Uh, and the third comment on your in very important question is that there are these organizations that measure how well democracies work. And there's, for instance, Freedom House. Freedom. Yeah. If you look at how Freedom House scores the United States, you'll see an arrow going down from 100% below, I think, 80%, 80 out of a total score of 100. And, and I'll I mean, tell you, there is, there is a, we are just giving small examples of, of a trend that you mentioned, other example. I think it's very worrying. I mean, we, I mean did, we did a survey last year all over the world, but the results in the U.S. were interesting. We asked people about four, about five different ways to govern any country, your country, right? And you could pick, you could say you liked every one of them. But so a very strong majority of Americans said we like representative democracy, and we kind of just described for them what representative democracy was. But two-thirds of Americans said, well, actually, we would like to have more direct votes on big issues facing the country. So there was strong support for more direct democracy. Um, but something like, and I forget the exact numbers here, but it was something like, one out of six Americans said they'd prefer a military rule, and one out of seven said they'd prefer a strong leader, or vice versa. I mean, it was the point is, you had somewhere in the teens, you had a percentage of the population said we would prefer a non-democratic form of government. So uh, we don't know what people thought 20, 30 years ago, but you know, I'll leave it to you as to whether that's whether you would prefer that one out of six or one out of seven people prefer, you know, military rule in the United States. I mean, what that says about, about the democracy. Okay. We have question number two. Uh, there. Two questions. One, one for Bruce and one for Sana. One for Bruce. The, there was a point made by BBC uh, a month ago, I think, uh, and pointing out that so in the Senate, 100 senators, 30 of the smallest states elect 60 of the senators. Yeah. 25, oh, those 30 states um, represent 25% of the yeah. while as the 20 largest states uh, with 75% of the population elect only 40 senators. Yeah. This would, to me, seem a bit odd, but when, when you make your polls, it obviously has a very significant yeah. uh, impact on it. Second, the question for Sana is uh, something was brought up by BBC the, the other day, uh, pointing out that Donald Trump is traveling around and electing. The election is very much, and he gets all the, the attention on the on the, the news uh, agencies, and therefore he is. The, this may be a midterm election, but it is very much an election of on Donald Trump. Uh, the Democrats doesn't seem to have anybody. They say that, first of all, the Democrats are not focused on their message. They don't have a clear thing, not even sort of healthcare or anything of that, that sort. And, and they do not have any messenger. The two people that represent the Democrats, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, are not exactly Ted Kennedy's or, or that sort of magnitude. And they are sort of easy targets for, for Trump to sort of... Uh, Conclusion seems to be that sort of this indeed will be very much. Uh, uh, I mean, there's a couple of things there. I mean, one is you know it's uh, it's the design of how we elect a president in the United States, which is a which is a legacy of a compromise made at the time we wrote the Constitution in 1789 when. 
Some of the small southern agricultural slaveholding states were afraid that the big urban, more urban states like New York and Massachusetts would eventually outvote them. So to get their assent to this new constitution, there was this deal made about how you elect a president. Well, I mean, you know, we now elect a president based on a system based on a deal made in the 18th century, right? But you, to change that, you'd have to amend the constitution. And why would those small states <laughs> give up the power they have by voting to change the constitution? Because you need a two-thirds majority of the Senate to change the constitution. So I'll leave it up to you whether that's ever going to happen. But uh, when we've asked the public whether you want to keep electing people, this the president this way, or you want a, a president who's elected by the popular vote, a majority of the public says we would prefer a popular vote. But it's, that's a majority of Democrats. A majority of Republicans say, no, we like it just the way it is. Thank you very much. And um, uh, what, what's interesting is what the system, and, and it's, it's not so much this, I mean, it, it's the overlay of this constitutional system on a bigger issue, which is that, what we talked about before, that people who currently at least vote Democratic disproportionately, young people, minorities, tend to congregate on the coasts and in urban areas, and then people who tend to vote Republican, at least today, are more spread around, is that um, in the last two elections, because we don't directly elect presidents, in the last two of the last three elections, the person who got the most votes didn't win the election. And the Brookings Institution, which is a think tank in Washington, has done a study where they say it's, it's highly likely that over the next five elections, we will, uh, the person who gets fewer of the votes will actually become president. And, you know, it goes back to your point. I mean, is that going to create more faith in the democracy or less, you know? Very interesting. Yeah. Require a change in the Constitution. already proportioned. No, you could. There's another way to do this. I agree with you. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. You, you, yeah, there, there is a backdoor way to do this, but, 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 well, I mean, in the sense it's illegal, but the point is that, that it, you, you're not changing the Constitution, but you could change the way the states do it. But, but the point is, when we ask people uh, uh, this question, it really depended on your party affiliation about how you felt about this. So people kind of do see their, their political self-interest. But Just a brief anecdote before you come answer, Sana. I, I went to the Institute of International Affairs in 1978, I think. There was Senator Sam Irvin. He came to the Institute. Yeah. And he took out a small book from his pocket and he said, this is the second greatest document ever written by man and that's next to the Bible. It is the US Constitution. <laughs> I know that times have changed, but I believe among the political class, this still has some resonance. And do Judicial class as well. Okay. So. Yeah, that, but that's also why it's so important not only how many people vote, vote but where they are. That's that's really what de will decide the, ele the, the election, not, well, how many, but also where they are. Um, and I think you're right about Democrats in, in, in a way. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think they're... they're um, of course, we, are, we have to see now, after the midterm elections, I think all eyes will go to 2020 and the presidential elections because there are always campaigns going on in the US. Um, I think they, 
the Democrats, what they, one of the things they missed in the 2016 election uh, was that part of the party was much more progressive than, than a lot of the electorate, especially on social issues. Um, so I think now, I guess they're trying to, to, to rein in the whole party, but you're right that they, they don't have a person. I don't know if the midterms is the right time to put up one person, but Nancy Pelosi, the, the, the Democrats uh, minority leader of, of the House, is used much more in negative ads by Republicans uh, than Donald Trump is by Democrats, which is interesting. They've been counting all the thousands of ads, um, t TV ads. So she is used as a, to scare Democratic voters in those suburbs, for example, as, okay, you might not like the president, but do you want this? And Nancy Pelosi, for you who, who might not know her, she is, she's been a, um, a congresswoman for, I don't know how many years, a long time. Um, yes, yes, she was Speaker of the House, but I mean, she's been there for, for a very long time. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. But, but uh, is it that the, when so, when we judge this election, but, I mean, to what an extent will it be in a referendum of Donald Trump, and to what an extent will it be the various races? I mean, well, I mean, historic, is, is that, historically, that, it's always been the, this first midterm it's after, a, it's it's a, a, it, it's and a, when we asked the when we've asked the public a couple weeks ago, uh, you know, is is this going to be a vote for Donald Trump or against Donald Trump? A majority of Democrats said it's going to be a vote against Donald Trump, and a plurality of Republicans said it's going to be a vote for Donald Trump. So I think we it's safe to say this is a vote about Donald Trump. And um, uh, while candidate, individual candidates in Democratic in districts, for example, Democratic candidates have spent most of their money on health care ads, television ads, not anti-Trump ads. Yeah. Um, uh, that's because I think, as Sana said, I mean, they know they've got the vote of the anti-Trump vote, right? I mean, it's and, and so they don't have to kind of stir up the Republicans by running anti-Trump ads. Um, but they're trying to entice some Republicans to vote for them on other issues. Uh, and I health, think and healthcare is a big issue. Yep. For the I think it's interesting to see also how I mean, as we talked about before, the how polarized the country is, and I and how this also will affect democracy in the end, because if you have less and less things that brings, bring people together and a less sense of unity. And, and there was one poll, uh, I don't know if it was Pew, um, and eight out of uh, 10 Americans said that, uh, that the America had become more polarized, and nine out of 10 said that it was a negative thing. Yeah. For the I mean, I, if, and if you're all interested in American politics, I would highly recommend going to our website and looking at the polarization index we have, because we've been asking some of the same values questions since the 1990s, and it just goes like this. Yeah. You name the issue, and I will bet you money that there's more polarization today than there was 30 years ago or 25 years ago. And, you know, it's just everything. I mean, we're... If, you, if you're a Republican, you believe this, and you're a Democrat, you believe that, and you used to be like, okay, you were slightly different in views. I mean, Republicans and Democrats have different views, but now those those uh, differences have become huge double-digit differences. And fewer and fewer people can even imagine voting for the other party. And and usually they're, 
their view of the the other party is much more they view the other party as much more ideological than their own they see their own party as yep. much more normal and the other party as much more negative. we'll move to another question now, but I, I can recommend you to go to pew homepage there are a lot of interesting material there okay next question so thank you for your words um my question is about the upcoming primaries and the presidential election so i wonder if you could share any which, which happens to start the day after this election. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Maybe more focus on what's going on within the Democratic Party. Thank you. Well, there was a poll out last week, uh, which is really at this stage just a, you know, kind of name recognition poll that had Joe Biden, the former vice president, at like 35 or 39 percent, and then Bernie Sanders at like 13 percent, and then everybody else, which was like a dozen more names, in single digits. So, uh, you know, from that poll, you could say, okay, Joe Biden is the leading candidate, but that's really just at this point, it's the only name on this list that I recognize. Um, but there's gonna have to be a winnowing out. Um, and the party's already talking about beginning debates among these candidates next year, which stop and think about that. That's like maybe 18 months before the general election. So you're going to all get really sick of this. <laughs> there are at least three Democratic women that, I mean, might run. I think Senator Warren, Massachusetts. Yes. Yeah. Senator Gillibrand of New York, Kamala Harris of, of California, and perhaps Amy Klobuchar of yeah, uh, Minnesota. Minnesota. Yeah. So there's going to be several female candidates. They are they are in the and, and single several, digits and now. Several right? African American candidates yeah, as well. As well. Yeah. 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 And then it's uh, and then it's of course about money. Who can raise yeah. the most money? And that's also a challenge usually for women. But isn't there? I want to ask you about that, Bruce. Isn't isn't there sort of you have to come above a certain threshold? Otherwise, you would have had President John Connolly in 1980. He collected much the most money of any Republican candidate. Well, I, I think what's got one elector at the at the convention. What's interesting about money in American politics, and of course, as many of you who follow American politics, the amount of money that's spent on politics is just yeah. staggering. Um, but uh, what a new development has been, because of the internet, um, the ability for candidates to raise a lot of money from very small donors. Uh, you know, Bernie Sanders did that, uh, Obama actually did that before him, mm -hmm. uh, and so, one of the things we can't anticipate is, okay, some of these people have very low name recognition, but they might be able to mount an effective fundraising campaign among small donors, mm -hmm. which would then when able to raise their name recognition. Mm -hmm. uh, so the idea, I mean, if you, I mean, you know, in the old days, if you looked at that list and you'd say, well, Joe Biden's gonna raise more money than anybody else because he has all the connections and, uh, you know, he's been around and some of these people are, you know, barely known, but, what we can't, history's not necessarily going to predict that because there's now this evidence that you can, I mean, the uh, Beto, this guy, I forget, Beto is his O'Rourke. last name, yeah, O'Rourke, yeah, who's okay. running for mm. Senate in Texas, has raised an enormous amount of money from just from small donors. 38 million dollars? Yeah, I mean, we're talking about 35, 36 million dollars. I mean, it's just an enormous amount of money. Uh, and that's a a new twist that we may see play out in the in the next uh, Democratic primary. The president, by the way, has raised a hundred million dollars for his reelection already, 
And as far as, uh, at least the journalistic accounts that I've seen, as far as we know, no presidents since we started keeping records with with Ronald Reagan, no president had ever raised a penny in the first two years of his first term for his reelection. And Donald Trump already has $100 million in the bank. So this is going to be a very expensive campaign. And I think talking about the next presidential election, uh, as we were talking about before, the Republican Party has increasingly become the party of, of white men. Uh, and the only way for them to, in the long run, win elections is to suppress voters because they are in such a minority. So if they can keep their voters up and other votes down, they, that's the way to, to, to retain power. And I would, um, I would say the other thing is we have a saying in American English, you can't beat something with nothing. And Donald Trump is certainly something. So the Democrats have to come up with something. Something, yeah. And we don't know what, who, who that's. I mean, at this point, you would have never predicted that Barack Obama would take the nomination in 20, uh, in 2000, what was it, 2008? You know, you or wouldn't have. Bernie Sanders been, would have been so strong. Or, or Bernie Sanders so strong, or Bill Clinton would have mm. been, you know. So it's early. I mean, let's, let's be honest. Was that peanut farmer from Georgia 40 years ago? <laughs> what was okay. his name again? Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Um, given the extremely conservative Supreme Court that we have now, uh, I would assume that state races will be more important, particularly for Democrats. So do you see any trends uh, on the state level as compared to the federal? Uh, or is it always so that a uh, blue state goes to the blue candidates on, on all levels and vice versa? I mean, the Republicans did a really, they were, um, I think, ahead of the Democrats 10 years ago when they really, in a, a very systematic way, chose to um, to go for the this, this, this so-called, well, the smaller elections the, that didn't seem very important. And um, with, a very, with a very clear strategy, which was redrawing the districts and taking power uh, and I think that was, of course, it was democratic and very <coughs> smart. I mean, the Democrats made a big mistake. I think now they're more, um, they have learned their lesson. And, but from there to, um, to make a huge difference, I'm, I'm there are, there are, I, I think don't there's know. There's a majority of states where the Republicans control the governors and both. And both yeah. houses of the state legislature. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a steep... Uh, it's, it's a hill to climb. For I mean, Democrats. if you're interested yes. in that, there's an analyst named Charlie Cook, who I think is probably yeah. the yeah. best analyst of uh, American politics today. And uh, he firmly thinks that the Democrats will do much better this time at the state level, legislative le and government. I, I mean, who knows? We'll know the day after. <laughs> I mean, one thing I would I would point out to you: we may not know the date after the election who won the election. Um, uh, this is this is a very hotly contested election with all sorts of potential for appeals and, you know, late counts and machines that break and mm -hmm. all sorts of things. Yeah. So um, when you wake up on Wednesday morning, which of course will be still the middle of the night in the United States, you may not know who won this election. <laughs> One thing only uh, talking about districts, we, we, there are also like positive signs in Pennsylvania, for example, where they did have to redraw the districts and we see in an increasing number of states where where they chose they, where the states actually choose to 
to have them redrawn by a, an yeah. independent commission or I was just going to add, I read this morning in the Washington Post, if you want to read a Republican who's very happy about what happened to the Supreme Court, read Hugh Hewitt in the Washington Post this morning. <laughs> 30 years war has finally been won by the Republicans and by sanity. Okay, next question. Yeah. Um, I had some questions regarding the surveys. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of regarding... Uh, perception of US foreign foreign policy if if it does if perception drives reality or if it doesn't really matter whether uh, the US is actually helping yeah. or actually acting in a different way or if it simply is that whatever the rest of the world thinks is always going to be that way look i i actually think that is the one of the questions we have to ask ourselves if we're going to be intellectually honest i mean you wouldn't be here if you didn't kind of think that was important. I mean, why would you sit through some presentation of the data unless you kind of intuitively thought it was important? And I think it's important, right? I do this, I, you know, I'm an internationalist, okay, I believe it's important. But there's some evidence that it's not that important. I mean, for example, in 2015, we asked people about NATO. Uh, and uh, we asked them then, in. NATO countries again in 2017. So in the interim, we had a presidential candidate and then a US president who attacked NATO and attacked NATO allies. You say, well, that might have some impact on people's perception. It had no impact. The, the favorability of NATO remained the same in 2015 and in 2017. The percentage of Americans who said they'd go to the defense of a NATO ally if they were attacked by Russia stayed the same. The percentage of Europeans who said, we expect America to come to our aid if we get attacked. You know, it, there, so you could say, well, the fact that you had the president attacking and he was a terribly unpopular president didn't matter. Uh, on the other hand, uh, the German government refused to join us in invading Iraq in, in uh, the Bush administration. The Turkish government refused to join us in invading Iraq. And we know from our polls the U.S. was very unpopular, the U.S. president was very unpopular in those countries, and these guys are democratically elected politicians. And I've had ger senior German officials say to me, well, you know, Schroeder re under was reading the polls. He understood mm -hmm. that he, this would be very unpopular. To, I mean, it wasn't just the Germans were pacifists. And um, so, I mean, we, we, we just don't, I mean, there was a study done by some academics during the Bush administration. You know, has the unpopularity of the U.S. in Europe hurt the America, iconic American brands like Coca-Cola and McDonald's and Nike? No, there was no evidence. The revenues kept going up. On the other hand, I was just last week in Brussels, I was talking to a bunch of American companies and I said, well, maybe this suggests it doesn't really matter. And this one guy raised his hand and he worked for a very prominent American company in Europe and he said, we've been denied certain contracts because people say, why should we give this to you, an American company, because you're so unpopular in our country. So from his one anecdotal piece of evidence, it does matter. So, but I think that's, I think we can't overinterpret this data, you know. I think it, mat it, it kind of matters in some cases. It doesn't maybe matter where we might expect it to matter. Okay, yeah. up there. Yes, um, my question is related to the democratic legitimacy of the electoral process and institutions in the United States. And what we see today is that I believe it was four of the nine justices have been appointed by presidents that were elected by less than 50% of the vote. 
And as we see with gerrymandering, there's a continuance of the, the process that Congress will be less and less representative of the people. I, I think the statistics now is that Democrats have to win by 6% to achieve a substantial majority in the Congress and by even more to win the Senate. So what are some solutions to this that Democrats, if they manage to have this landslide that gives them a small majority, what can they do? And that could be either um, going nuclear and saying, we're going to give Puerto Rico and Washington, D.C. statehood and draft four new senators. That could be saying that we have control of the Congress now. We're going to just start adding Supreme Court justices. There's, that's what I would call going nuclear. But if the Democratic voters view the Senate and, or the Supreme Court as illegitimate, what can Democrats do to regain both some power, but also rebuild the legitimacy in the eyes of their own voters? They could start by winning more elections. <laughs> Look, I, A, I'm prohibited by the Pew Research Center to actually give <laughs> political advice <laughs> to the Democrats. But I do think there's a piece of data that we have that's, that is fascinating and also maybe a bit disturbing, is that for years we've asked people, do you want your elected representatives to compromise with the other side to get things done or stand on principle? And for years, Democratic, uh, Democrats said, we want our elected representatives to compromise, and Republicans said, no, no, we want our representatives to stand on principle. This year, for the first time, this last month, both Democrats and Republicans said we want our elected representatives to stand on principle, which it does seem to me is one indicator that the gridlock could get worse. Because, you know, in a two-party system like the United States, mm. at least at the margin, it has worked because people compromised across the aisle. You know, they kind of made they'd have packed with the devil across the aisle because they wanted to get stuff done. But if the message coming now from both bases is don't you dare compromise with the other side, uh, then um, it may be harder to get stuff done. Uh, There's the things that you suggested would require the Senate to, help, would, to agree. And the Senate is overwhelmingly Republican and will probably remain overwhelmingly Republican at le until at least 2020 when actually then twice as many Republicans are up for re-election as Democrats. And in 2022, when twice as many Republicans are up for re-election as Democrats. So you know, watch this space, because that could change, uh, but not, not after this election, probably. That's something? No, that's OK. OK, next question. What can you say about the relative weight of economic factors in the elections, such as unemployment rate, stock market? I think it's very important. I mean, for it's an obvious thing for um, for the president and for Republicans to use during the campaign now, and um, it's it's very clear that unemployment rates are low and that many economic indicators are good, even though there are, of course, there are problems underlying in the American um, economy. For example, that unemployment rates hide people who have left the um, the workforce, because they've just given up looking for jobs, for example. But uh, I think economy, the, the strong economy is, is one of the president's biggest 
assets. I mean, we know from public opinion that if you feel good about the economy, you feel good about a lot of things. I don't think it's the only determining, by far, it's not the only determining factor. What is interesting is that the Republicans thought that their tax cut that they passed in 2017 would be a big advantage for them. Our survey shows that a plurality of Americans say uh, they don't like the tax cut, so it, ha it has not, in general, uh, won public approval. And, but I think more interestingly, there have been about five or six elections, congressional elections since 2016, when, you know, when somebody died or they were sent to jail or whatever, you know, but they left office and there had to be a special election. And each one of those, the Republican Party started to spend money on television ads touting this, this income tax, this tax cut, and look what we did for you, you should vote for us. And in each case, the Republican Party pulled the ads before the election because they weren't working. And you know, the reality is that you're not going to spend money on television ads if your internal polls say this isn't resonating with the voter. So I do think it is an interesting commentary on at least one economic issue that the Republicans were sure was going to be an advantage to them that really hasn't turned out. Now, that hasn't held the president back from talking about it all the time, but they're there's no data that suggests that this has actually helped them. Okay, final question, then I will end with a brief anecdote from my experience of US in the, It has been discussed how low the participation is in election in the States. Has it never been in discussion to omit the system that they have to register in advance? And also how difficult it is to find poll Patients. Secondly, is it really, I mean, maybe it's the Constitution that the election has always to be uh, carried out the first Tuesday after the first Monday yeah. in November. In most countries, elections are being carried out yeah. the weekend. What is your opinion about these two questions? Please? Well, you know, you know, we, I, I'm not sure of my history here, but my understanding is that it was the first Tuesday after the first Monday because you couldn't do it on Sunday because we were, you know, a God-fearing country and everybody goes to church. <laughs> and second, that was the day people went to town for market, right? Huh. So then, okay, they're going to be in town for market, they can vote. But, um, uh, you know, this idea of moving in the election to like a weekend or whatever has been around forever. It's never gone anywhere. Um, uh, I remember having dinner with the conservative prime minister of Australia, not the guy who is now the Prime Minister, but his predecessor, who was already kicked out a couple of weeks, months ago. But um, I, he's a very conservative guy. And he said to me, you know, I'm a very conservative guy, but in Australia, because you're required to vote, I can't get elected by just appealing to my base. I have to kind of appeal to the center as well. And his principal criticism of our system was we didn't require people to vote. And now we actually tested this idea with the American public. Only 17 or 18% of the public wants to be required to vote. So there's not a whole lot of support for that idea. But you know, when you stop and think about it, I mean, that would do a lot to overcome the voter suppression issue. Because you know, if, you, if somebody tried to suppress your vote, you'd end up paying a fine or whatever the penalty was. So you might resist that suppression. And uh, this low turnout, would, you wouldn't you know, have to deal with that problem. Um, but there's really no support for that kind of reform. 
nor these other kinds of issues that, that you, I mean, like I say, the other ideas have been around. Should we move the election to the weekends? Should we have, you know, you register, you know, when you go to vote? I mean, there are some states where that's the case, where, you know, you can register on election day. Mm -hmm. uh, Oregon has actually experimented very interestingly. Everybody votes by mail. You, you, you can't go down to the fire station and vote. You, everybody votes by mail. There doesn't seem to be fraud or corruption associated with that. So that'd be another reform that other states might copy. But the issue is we don't have uniform national election laws. Every state has their own election laws. And, and they're all different for different reasons, historically and otherwise. And um, there's really no, there's no public outrage at the low participation People just kind of take it as normal. I, I'll tell you my personal view here. It's not a Pew Research Center view. I find that outrageous, right? I mean, that people don't, mm. don't bespeak themselves to get out in, in a rainy day and go vote. Is, and there should be other ways. If it's rainy, you've already voted by the mail or I don't know what, you know, but not the case in I the United States. Just... <clears throat> It's, it's, it just to f before we finish, I, I would like to say something as a, as a reporter and about polarization, um, which you can also see, of course, going of educational lines where educated people vote Democrat and people without with low education vote um, Republican. And you can see trust in the news media as uh, you can see that in, in how people trust journalists and the news media as well, where liberal people tend to trust the news media and conservative people tend not to trust the news media. And when I go around um, asking people where they get their news or asking um, so-called experts like you how to change this, people are very, uh, they don't really know what could, uh, what could change it. And I think this is also that where people get their information and how they... Um, how they process that information. And I think that's one of the really crucial things going forward. And I think a lot of people that I met traveling around, they dismiss everything that is written in the Washington Post or the New York Times because it's written in the Washington Post and the New York Times. And um, a lot of people, they don't know local journalists anymore because the, the so many local newspapers are not around anymore in the US. So when you don't know a, a journalist or a reporter, you don't see them at the local barbecues or they're not parents at school. Um, you, don't, you don't trust the media because it, it's, it's a part of the elite. And I think a lot of people, so they watched local television and um, which is now also bought by big companies with a very clear political agenda. So talking about polarization, um, I think that's really, um, something to bear in mind with force of coming elections. I mean, we've, we've done a survey where we ask people about values and then you kind of cluster them based on whether they're consistently conservative in their values or somewhat conservative or truly middle of the road or somewhat liberal, very liberal. And what's unnerving is that 40% of people who are consistently conservative in their values only get their news from Fox News. Not somewhat, only. And 40% of people with consistently liberal views 
only get their news from MSNBC or National Public Radio or CNN. So, you know, we are self-segregating ourselves in terms of our information sources. And I dare say, I don't know about you in Sweden, but I find myself in that category as well, right? I remember when uh, Justice Scalia was still alive. He was a very conservative Justice Supreme Court. And he was interviewed, and I remember him saying, I don't read the New York Times. It gives me indigestion. And I thought, well, how can this be? He says, one Supreme Court justice. It's the, it's the newspaper of record in the United States. This is outrageous that he doesn't read the New York Times. And then I realized, I never watch Fox News because it gives me indigestion. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let me just remind you of another story that might happen in the United States. My first visit was in 1973. That was one year after Watergate. I traveled around the US on uh, Greyhound buses, and I read the New York Times, whatever I got, about what was happening to Watergate. And then I came to Peoria, Illinois, where my mother's cousin, Miss Hazel Peterson, lived. And she introduced me to her congressman. It was Mr. Bob Michael, yeah. the minority leader of the Republicans in the House of Representatives. And I asked Mr. Michael, what about these Watergate stories, Mr. Congressman? Is there anything to it? Do you think the president is involved? Oh, no. That's not just a big bunch of nothings. No importance. May I suggest to you that you read the papers in the coming weeks. <laughs> there will be stories that are not only about the midterm elections. That will be about President Trump and Mr. Mueller and his investigation. Okay, thank you for your interest. Thank you. Thanks. Find us on www.ui.sc. We are also on Facebook and on Twitter with UI Sweden. And we're also on YouTube where you can watch our seminars and interviews. <laughs>